Welcome in to another episode of Patrick Jones Baseball, where we find the best tools to build the best players. Hope everyone is doing well. It's so nice to see that the weather is finally starting to get a little bit warmer. I'll be heading off to spring training in a couple weeks for minor league spring training. And again, just can't wait to get back out on that field after it's crazy. It's been an entire year since I've been able to be back on a field. So cannot wait for that. In this episode, we have a, a very special guest, uh, someone who has spent, geez, uh, over, uh, way older, uh, over 35 years in professional baseball uh, in two different organizations. Jeff Bannister. Jeff was the manager for the Pittsburgh Pirates from 2010 to 2014, and he was the manager for the Texas Rangers from 2015 to 2018. He was manager. Uh, he was the American League Manager of the Year in 2015, and I, I, you couldn't meet a more humble guy than Jeff. I really appreciate him taking the time to come on the show. He's actually uh, stepped away from coaching professional baseball right now. He's actually... His title is Director of Player Development at the University of Northern Colorado, which is where his son is currently playing, so he's able to spend some more time with his son. But man, this guy has a, an incredible story. I mean, he, I, I don't want to give away too much in the intro, but he almost had his leg amputated when he was a kid. He was paralyzed for a couple weeks in college because of a home plate collision, and it just, I mean, very inspirational story that anyone in any walk of life should listen to. And we also get into just his personal philosophy on coaching, how he went about working with professional organizations, what it's like to be a manager in the big leagues, what he looks for when he's, uh, and I wouldn't say necessarily what he what he looks for, but how he how he goes about judging a, a hitting coach who's on his staff and connecting with players. It's a fascinating interview. I, mean, I was fascinated by it. I mean, he spent over 30 years alone in, in just the Pittsburgh Pirates organization. So I I was a big fan of this interview. I think that if you're into baseball and if you're just someone who enjoys listening to, to people who have been doing something for a very long time at a high level, you're going to enjoy this one too. So ladies and gentlemen... Here is my interview with Jeff Bannister. All right, Jeff, I appreciate you coming on the show today. Um, you know, you, you've had a lot. You've been coaching longer than I've been alive, so I'm, I'm just going <laughs> to be asking you all sorts of questions, just picking your brain, but. I know right now you're actually you're the director of player development, University of, of Northern Colorado, able to watch your son play. Uh, you know, we talked the other day, you know, you said you're blessing in disguise. You're able to take a step back and just, you know, watch your, watch your son play baseball, which I think is great. I mean, how, how is that being a part of a, of a college program now after all these years being in professional baseball and just being able to watch your kid play? Well, first of all, it's, thanks for having me on. It's, uh, you know, it's fun to do these, uh, these type of things because it's a, you know, I look at it this way. It's, it's an opportunity to give back. Uh, I had a lot of people forward to me as a, as not only as a player, but as a coach, a manager that allowed me to, to go out and not only have success, but fail and learn from, from those failures to, to you know, have some measurable success. But 
it's it's a great opportunity for me in a sense that I do get an oppor- uh, a chance to work with some some athletes that will they ever get into pro ball who knows uh, but they have that fresh mindset of let's you know let's go play baseball it's it's you know it's you take you strip down all the seats you strip down all the, the big giant scoreboards and the corporations and everything and you get back to some grassroots baseball and and it's it's been fun it really has and it's been refreshing it's it's sharpened uh, some of my skill sets that, or I should say, resharpen some. Uh, and then the the added benefit is I get to I get to hang out with my son and, and watch him play. Uh, something that in in my industry, uh, you know, when he's playing baseball, we're playing baseball, and I I think I got to see him play maybe five six games in his high school career. So. Uh, this is a blessing uh, because our, our, our families, um, they, they, they sacrifice a lot. Uh, and so I think I, I shared with you that my daughter was also a division one volleyball player and I only got to see a handful of those games. And it's, it's those things you can never get back. Uh, but I have an opportunity right now to spend some time with him and, and we can share the dugout. Yeah, I told him on, on day one, it's the first, first, chance I've gotten to to share a dugout with him on on his terms not on mine you know he would he would come in and be in the dugout with me in Texas and Pittsburgh and stuff so but it, this one's on his terms and that's really cool for me if you could go back would you would you do anything different now knowing you know you were only able to see a few of his high school games I mean I guess what I'm, I'm kind of getting at is uh, how would you would you do it any different or was it just that's just the nature of the beast? I think part of it is nature of the beast, but yes, I, I would I would definitely. Um, I, I think you know how you spend time with your family. Not not the that <clears throat> can you change the amount of time. I was always a guy that when the season was over with, I would go home. I wasn't out on the golf course with my buddies. I wasn't. You know, I was at home trying to do things with with my wife, my kids. Um, but it's I think the you know the ability to turn off the game and and just be present. Uh, that's I think more that's more important. I think we talked a little bit about that is this the ability to be present for your family. Because this is this is a a business that you can be easily distracted in. Uh, I, I I tell young coaches a lot of times you you know turn on turn on the the movie any given Sunday and watch Pacino's uh, speech and and how he set, talks about you know the number of relationships that he's ruined in his lifetime and and it truly is that's kind of what it is and. Um, can you avoid that? And this is, it's a great business. Um, blessed to have the career, but there are some sacrifices and it. And, and it's typically our family. And, and I would, I would go back and make sure that I was present in all those situations. That's awesome. I appreciate you sharing that. It's going to be a, you know, probably usually we have a couple thousand uh, coaches or just people listening to this. And so I, I definitely think that's something that's, 
uh, you know, going to resonate with a lot of them, including myself too. Uh, you know, I was I was doing some research for this podcast and, and looking you up on on the internet. And man, I tell you what, you I was not expecting to find some of the things that I found when you were a kid growing up. It's like you you didn't have the easiest. I mean, I I you saw that you developed cancer and then they wanted to amputate your leg, and so you just yeah. somehow convinced the doctor not to. And seven operations later, I mean, how did all that go down? <clears throat> yeah, I don't know if I actually convinced the, the doctors as much as <laughs> I got I got lucky. Um, yeah, the, the, the as the story goes, I was um, I was a football player as well and, and and played football for my dad, who was my coach. Uh, so but there was an incident in a, in a playoff game in the Astrodome where I was happened to be in a game, twisting my ankle. And I think that it's just the the sequence of events. I don't think one had anything to do with the other. I think the twisted ankle probably was um, it just you know kind of brought attention to an area that was already affected. Uh, however, uh, it never you know, never really kind of, got better in a sense of where uh, we always thought it was just a, a severely acute twisted ankle. And it, at one point went to the doctor, my dad took me to the doctor and um, even the doctor at the, at the very beginning said, well, it was just, you know, a very, very, uh, really sprained ankle. And, and, and one thing led to another that was, November, December rolls around. I started developing flu-like symptoms. So we thought I had the flu, but my, yet my ankle was still just, the pain was pretty much horrific at times where I couldn't even, you know, put my foot on the ground. And so, uh, went through Christmas that year, uh, and then on into the start of the new year, we went back to school had gotten into I was starting to prepare for baseball but still part of the the off-season football program and it was just you know it was just a, a the flu-like symptoms were just knocking me down the ankle was killing me and right around the middle of January there was like it was a a Sunday where it was the pain it had gotten so bad um and I just didn't I couldn't make it to school the, ne the next day on Monday and so um, I actually, I know this because I, I, my mom tells me the story because she came home and found me, you know, no cell phones back then at all landline. So, you know, I had, I had gone in to get the phone to call my mom was a school teacher. I guess I was in such bad shape and pain was so bad. I was trying to call somebody. So I called the school. And the receptionist was uh, a family friend, so she knew immediately. She could hear my voice, knew who I, who I was, um, and ran down and got my mom and told my mom that, you know, something's going on at the house. You need to go home. And so she, my mom came home and found me in the hallway, passed out, my, and my ankle, my foot was sw swollen to about the size of a cantaloupe. And 
she took me to the hospital emergency room and they eventually did at the time exploratory surgery because they really didn't know what was was happening and it took a, a number of surgeries but i was i was in the hospital kind of quick quick end of it i was I was in a hospital for four months at one time, two months another time, and a little over a month. I mean, it was in series of of surgeries and kind of the, the story that you bring up. There was right around probably about the middle of it all. Uh, my fever had gotten so bad, and I was starting to deteriorate so terribly, and I was in a bed packed in ice like this like i was a fish trying they were trying to get the temperature down because they were afraid that that i was the infection that had had taken over was was going to kill me and the story is that the doctor came in took my parents out in the hallway and i could hear my mother kind of wailing in the in the hallway and you know, just crying. My dad walks back in and the old football coach in him, very stern and very direct, uh, sits down and, and starts to tell me that they were getting ready to take me into surgery and the doctors were going to have to make a decision at that time on whether or not they were going to have to amputate my leg from the knee down to save my life. It could quite possibly come down to that. And about that time, doctor walks in and, and starts to explain everything to me. And that's when I told him, I said, hey, you don't understand, but let me tell you where I sit. Uh, you know, 15 years old, right? I'm like, we're bulletproof at that time. And and I just, I told him, I said, well, you, you don't get it. I'm I'm going to play major league baseball and I need both legs. So <laughs> if, if you have to take the leg, then let me die. Cause I don't want to not be able to. And, you know, that's just the, you know, where your the 15 year old brain goes to. It's not like I was like tougher than anybody else. It's just the stupidity of being 15. And um, fortunately that, you know, when they went into, to, to do that surgery, they they found um, cysts that were growing on on the bone. They were they were able to take the cyst. They they actually cut some windows in in the uh, uh, in the bone in my lower leg. Um, relieved a lot of pressure. Were, was able to not only treat the infection that had started, also, but uh, they were able to you know, completely diagnosed me with kind of where things were at. Now, it was a tremendous uphill battle from that point, but uh, one that I'm fortunate enough to be able to sit here and tell you the story. I'm sure when you woke up from that surgery, that, that was that the greatest moment of your life, realizing like they didn't take my leg? At, at that point, yes. The uh, To be able to, because that was the first question, uh, because when you – I mean, I had, there was an open wound on, on the inside of my ankle, I mean, the size of a softball. It was, it, it literally looked like um, that a shark had taken a bite out of, out of my leg because that's how, how ravaged the, the leg was at the time. And, and so uh, when I woke up and one of the, you know, it was the first question, A, I'm still here and B, you know, do I still, 
because I couldn't feel my toes or anything like that just because of the, you know, the surgery. And so, uh, yeah, I was happy to say the least now. Uh, but it's, I, I get some general reminders now at my age of, you know, just how, how, uh, all the surgeries have, have taken its toll though. Wow. That's a incredible. That is, I can't imagine mentally what that's like as a, a kid, a teenager to have to go through all that, but it seems like you, your luck. I mean, you, when you were in college, you had another, you had like a home plate collision and then you were paralyzed for 10 days in the hospital. Yeah, that was, I, I think everything that we do in our life prepares us for different other moments. And so, yeah, October 23rd, um, uh, it was a fall game. It was kind of the last fall game. I was in junior college in, in, in Texas playing and uh, the coach at the time, my coach came, you know, called me the night before and said, Hey, cause I wasn't, I wasn't scheduled to play that, that game. We were, we were going to play one more game as last uh, game of the fall. And back then you still had the winter draft. You could draft junior college players. You could, you know, it's, and so uh, kind of the famous story where Roger Clemens was, was drafted uh, out of junior college um, and, and refused to sign because they, he wanted, I think, 10,000 10, more dollars than what they were offering. The Mets were going, you know, the Mets would have had Gooden, Clemens, and and uh, I can't think of who the other the other pitcher was at the time, but uh, it was something like ten thousand dollars more, and they didn't want to they didn't want to give up ten thousand dollars. And then, you know, Roger winds up elsewhere. But you, could you imagine that pitching staff? Uh, <laughs> but so <clears throat> I was not supposed to play. Coach calls me and says, "Hey, Jeff, you know." Uh, Yankee scout is going to be at the game tomorrow and, you know, would like to, it was Deacon Jones who was and would like to uh, see you play. So he said, I'm going to catch you for five innings. It's awesome. You know, I get an opportunity to, to play for a scout. Scout wants to see you. Well, it was a fifth inning runner on third base, shallow fly ball hit to, to right field. Uh, I believe there was one out at the time. And not not one of those balls deep enough that you think that runner is going to tag. You probably should be, you know, somewhere down the line in case the ball's not caught. Um, well, my right fielder catches the ball flat-footed, and he's right-handed, and he makes a throw, which took the ball up the line. Runner was tagging, and so I go up the line, kind of like if you if you watch the the Jonathan Lucroy play with uh, Marisnik, very similar type play where I'm going up the line, but I go to my knees to try to block the ball, catch the ball and make a tag thinking that the runner's going to try to go by me. Well, I wind up, I'm right in the middle of the line. I'm on my knees. Runner tries to go over the top of me. I try to drive myself into the runner which was a bad move. Going to my knees was a bad move. Um, and he has the full force of his body and knee hits me in the top of the head and it drives my head and neck straight down and which creates three, um, like 
comp, not fractures and breaks. It just the the, the three vertebrae, the five, six, seven, essentially just explode outward. And um, I fall over, silent and not moving on the field. Um, you know, coaches came out, and fortunately, this is another you know fortunate moment that my dad happened to be in the stands and being a football coach had seen this type of tragedy before and walked out and at one where I when I came to because I was knocked out for a period of time and when I came to I was he looked right down at me and said you can't feel anything can you you already said you can't move can you and I you know, I was able to tell him no, because I couldn't. Um, so I believe that him being there, um, they didn't move me. They held me. They got the ambulance there, and they were able to transport me to the hospital. And there was, you know, that night, you know, when, I, when we talk about <clears throat> being paralyzed, it's, it's, I didn't have any real movement. There's the, the feeling within the body was, you know, just electrical impulses, but no manipulation whatsoever. And um, my mother had to cut my uniform off of me, which was, you know, they immediately put me, they really didn't give me an opportunity to kind of make it through the night. Um, but again, I just, you know, I'm, a, I'm a man of faith. I believe that there's, you know, there were those moments uh, and the ability to tell a story and the responsibility of telling the story to other, you know, so that other people understand that there are, you can overcome things that in your life that we, we, we all have stories, right? And, and obstacles in our life, it's just, you know, when we hear others, and sometimes I look back on it and I'm thinking, you know, yes, I went through it, but it's, you know, it's a shareable story for others to understand that determination and grit and resilience are, are huge factors in our life. Well, I think it's just inspirational too. I mean, just hearing you say that, I mean, you're, to go through all that before the time you're 21 years old or however <laughs> old you were. And then going back to what you said to the doctor about you're going to play in the big leagues. I mean, looking back, I mean, you did, you ended up yeah. You, know, you did. I mean, you did. So I think that's, that's, it's a very inspirational story for people out there listening. It really is. Well, I appreciate that. It's humbling because there, there, there are times where, you know, I think early on in my playing days when, when, you know, even when I came back um, and continue to play collegiately and then got an opportunity to play professionally that, we forget we forget about those we forget and and i never well I should, I, let me back up let me rephrase it i didn't forget about things that had happened sometimes we take them for granted and the appreciation now as i sit here and i think back and i and i've kind of changed my mindset on on you know when I talk about telling the story, there's and, and the responsibility. There's the responsibility to to you know the person or young 
athlete or just any individual that may hear the story and need, you know, that little extra that belief in themselves. And that because that's the thing that for me, I never I was the one going through it. So I didn't know any any difference. But I the responsibility also to the, the people that sit on the periphery. And what I mean by that, there's, you know, when I was, there was a nurse, a woman by the name of Susan Jones, who knew that I was, you know, at one point I'd gotten addicted to Demerol in the hospital. And I was, you know, mentally and emotionally, you know, you can imagine where, where I was, you know, not being able to leave a bed or the, the same room for, for four months or five months. And, you know, not know if I'm going to walk again and things like that, where that can take you in just so many dark places that, that yet, you know, this woman comes in, she's a nurse and she's, she always knew what amount of either ass kicking she was going to give me or a hug that I needed for the day. And I, I, I think about that. It's, there's a responsibility to people like her also because we don't ever do this by ourselves it's it's like coaching you know we you and I have a discussion about coaching earlier it's like the greatest coaches I know they understand that that there is there is a certain amount of what's necessary today and it's not always the same and if you don't know the human being on the other side then you never can give them what is necessary. And that is in itself, the responsibility to the people on the periphery to know that that is, yes, you're doing right, but that's, you need to know that that's what you need more than, you know, sometimes what some kid's spin rate is or what his launch angle is. Those are all necessary, but you understand the human side of coaching. Uh, and so that's why I, I, I have changed my mindset on, on why, why the story is important. Mm. I think that that makes me, it reminds me of just good coaching that nurse had too. I mean, she was the nurse you needed that day, similar to, you know, coaches and you need to be coached the player that, that they need that day, whatever it is, not what you want. Right. <laughs> we, we, you know, we, we get in, we, we can fall in a, 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 this mindset that we want players to play like we want what we like. Right. And we forget that players that we coach are human beings and they have things outside of the sporting event that affect them on a daily basis. Now, can we get them, coach them up enough to, be able to maneuver past that, the obstacles they have off the field to concentrate on, on the obstacles they have on the field. And can we, uh, I like to say, can I reach my, and it's not for me, but my, my father told me, you know, the day he died, actually, and we talked about, you know, he asked me that day, you know, have you thought about what you're going to do when you're done playing? And at the time I was my second year of playing. I'm like, no, oh, dad, I'm like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play 15 years in the big leagues and retire, bro. What are you, what are you talking about? What about? <laughs> and he says, no, no, no. You need to understand. I'm like, you know, he's starting to coach me then on, 
know. And he would tell me, he says, you got to be able to reach into the soul of another human being and make them believe that they are more than they think they're capable of being. And whatever that means, what, you know, it, it's not always, um, Clint Hurdle used to tell me all the time, he said, Manny, look, players want to know that you care about them and can you get them better? And then the other side of that is that players want to hear the truth. It may hurt and they may be, may be mad, but they want to hear the truth. They don't, they don't want to hear us tell them something that they don't, they know is not the truth. No matter what, what the feeling. And that's why when you talk about the nurse, she, she knew that I needed to hear the truth on a lot of things, but also she was, she was willing to, to inspire me enough to do things that I didn't think I thought were capable. I think listening to you tell tell the, both those stories, I mean, I can only imagine just playing for you, knowing those stories ahead of time. I mean, that's got to get you some credibility right away because, you know, <laughs> you say something to someone there and, you know, about playing time or whatever it is, it's like that's really nothing compared to what you had to go through as a kid. You know, I think, <sighs> yes, but there's also, you know, Adrian Beltre, right? And if you if you don't know a lot about Adrian, might be the toughest human being I've ever been around. And the things he was able to play through, uh, you know, I, I watched the guy compound dislocation of his of his uh, left thumb, his glove thumb. And he's back in seven days after surgery and he's playing and knowing how much pain he's, he's in every time he fields a ground ball or takes a swing. Right. And, you know, he tears a hamstring coming out of spring training and plays through it. There's you know, obliques that he was, he would strain an oblique and still continue to play. And, and, you know, he would fight to stay in the lineup no matter what, every single day. And I look at, you know, and the reason why I tell those stories is because as a young player or any player, and you see somebody like that, and you may not be able to live up to that. You try, and he's your teammate, and, and, or even a guy like myself as a manager. Yeah, it gives you credibility, but there's also there's some intimidation there for some guys who have never, you know, never really been through to the extreme, those extremes. And I had some players, you know, I, I learn a lot. I, I try to learn from my players because it's important for them. There's an education also on, on, if you listen to your, I, I've been around coaches who, who thought they had absolutely everything down pat and they knew everything. And it was, and even when I first started managing at a young age, it's like, yeah, I thought I was a really smart guy. But I found out I wasn't really as smart. In, in, and there were times where I had to pick up the phone or text to some of my former players and say, hey, bro, I'm sorry. I wish I would have known more. And I wish I, wish I wasn't such a jackass. And I, I would have 
found a way to get you better. Uh, and what I mean by that is that I don't try to use the things that I've been through to really, you know, hey, you got to go play through this, right? Because I know that we're all different. And it's, it's a learned, um, can you play through it? But yes, does it give you credibility? I think so. Um, but I don't, I, you know, unless somebody wants to know the story, I don't tell them the story because I don't want to, I never wanted to be that coach. And I've been around these guys too. Oh, well, let me tell you how it was when I played. <laughs> Nobody oh, <yeah>. cares. <laughs> Oh. when when did you know that coaching was going to be your path because you were in the pirates i mean which is this is so rare i mean you don't hear this at all anymore as much as as much as coaches are going from team to team you were in their organization for over 30 years coaching i mean when when did you know like hey this is gonna this is it for me so um i think i knew when i first started uh, i think when i signed the contract uh, I knew what I was up against. Uh, I knew that um, I mean, my body hurt already. Um, you know, had the seven seven ankle surgeries, and that that hurt like hell every day. But part of the story is that I'd already had reconstructive knee surgery, also. Jeez. Um, you know, and the neck injury, which every morning, I mean, it, it's it's a it's an adventure in the morning when I get up and I can only imagine how offensive NFL offensive linemen feel, what they feel like in the morning time. Mm. Uh, I, I can, I can probably assimilate some of the things, this is the things that hurt, but that was, that had started at, at age 21. Um, so I kind of knew that uh, as, as much determination as I had, but there was, and I loved watching my dad coach. I loved watching the interaction. I loved being around him and things that he, how he would say things and the players, how players would respond. And, um, and so um, I knew that that was probably going to be in, in, in my pathway. Um, I tried to prolong it as I, as long as I could, but it just, it got to the point to where after I had reconstructive elbow surgery, I was, I knew that I was really close. I was given an opportunity in 93 um, to be a, you know, it was Spin Williams, the pitching coach and myself. John Walkenfuss was supposed to be the manager. He was only there for, I think, 10, 10 or 11 days. And so Spin and I ran the club and I was still a player also. So you know, it's player manager type situation. And, and so I, I fell in love with that aspect of it, uh, of, you know, coaching, teaching, inspiring other players. Um, and so that became a passion. After all the years you've coached and all the players that you've you've been able to manage and, and coach, I mean, Hall of Fame players to just players who barely are on the on the team, you know, just out of college. If you could go back to your to your younger days as a coach, maybe even your first few years as a coach, like what would 
what would you do differently with everything you know now about all the play and everybody you've coached? Like, is there anything you would do differently or was it just you were kind of the same personality, same guy back then? Oh, absolutely. No, I'm not. Look, I was 28, 29 year old, you know, tense, uptight, just want to wanted so badly to have success. That um, I took, I'd lightened up a lot more. <laughs> um, not so serious. Now, there are, you know, there is some seriousness about what we do because there is there are careers that are involved, right? Uh, however, it's it's not my career. It's a player's career. Mm -hmm. And that's where um, like a, a lot of young coaches or there's still coaches today that, that you, know, you listen to them talk. I mean, big time coaches. You look across NCAA, you look across the NFL, NBA, Major League Baseball, you hear their voices, right? And how they say things. Now they respond to certain things and, and you go, well, they're the show. In reality, they're not. I mean, they're not. They're never the show. It's it is the player. The player is always the show. Now, do you need a coach to help direct, maneuver, and and coordinate and and make decisions? Yes. Uh, I would have gotten out of the way a little more. Mm. Uh, still, would have that firm, fair attitude of um, if you signed up then you signed up for me to care enough about you to to push drive uh, but also acknowledge successes uh, and not not worry so much about the failures mm. uh, I think I think and it's too many coaches they're, they're too pompous to understand that it's failures are not necessarily a direct reflection on you as a coach. And it's not your, that's not necessarily your responsibility. Now that doesn't mean you just throw balls and bats out there and, and let them go at it. It's not that it's, it's how you teach. It's how you speak. Do you speak in a manner that is uplifting to your players but yet the message of urgency is still always there. If that makes sense. Mm, yeah, no, it definitely, definitely resonates. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. That was really good right there. What, what do you think about today's game when it comes to the analytics and shifting and all this and that I was, I was able to um, talk with a few players recently and of course, you know, they hate, they, you know, the, the shifting, they hate it. They hate it, the shifting. <laughs> and then it's like, as a hitting coach, you know, my thing is like, well, I mean, really good hitters, you know, I mean, I, I'm in Cincinnati. So, you know, I'm Pete Rose is here and Votto and all these guys where it's really an art form of beating the shift. And so I like that as a, as a hitting coach, but what, what are your thoughts on just everything that's going on? So, uh, well, first of all, I mean, in Pittsburgh, we were, you know, you can go back and read Travis Sawcheck's Big Data ba Baseball, Big Data Baseball. We were 
we were into the analytics well before and I'll, and I'll, I'll tell you this. So I, again, I'm, I had Chuck Tanner as, as a mentor, right. And even though he didn't have a, a computer that he and programs that, that spit out information to him, he was still talking metrics and analytics without putting the names and numbers on it, right? We, we ran shifts when I was in the minor leagues as a manager back in the 90s. Now, they weren't the drastic shifts, but, but there were, they were. We paid attention to the numbers. We paid attention to, you know, you knew if a guy had, you know, a high, you call it high spin rate now on, on, on their fastball because they, they got to buy you upstairs and that, 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 that had to carry through the zone. So you knew that, right? And um, you knew guys that, that uh, you know, they, they, you know, you call it launch angle, but you can see it in their swings, right? Uh, but I'll, I'll tell you, so the, the shifts, I, I think what people fail to realize is, is why, why the shifts came into play. The shifts were not to, in the very beginning, to put your guys in position for what would happen more often than not, right? We would run shifts on power hitters that were pull power hitters to do what? To try to get them to change their self. So you're playing that, that game of, you know, can I get you out of your power stroke that you're uncomfortable with, you know, right? And try to get you to do something that is not in your skill set. And then they evolved into, because now we got into hitters, stay with your A swing, no matter what, and this is what you're going to do. And this is who you are. And now, and then, and then we, we would analyze, well, you know, part of the deal in Pittsburgh is, you know, we, we started, well, what did you, what could we get you to hit on the ground in this area? And so now we started condensing the field on you. Um, do I think that it has had an effect on the game? Yes. I, I don't, I don't necessarily like where it has taken the game. Um, but I also look, this is baseball is the, one of the biggest game of adjustments that we have. And as a hitter, having that extra ability to, to drive the ball the other way, look for a ball out over that you can, you can hit the other way. Uh, and then I'll go back to, you know, a, a guy like Joey Gallo, right? What's his skill set? What do you know about, about Joey? He's a big home run guy, big pull, you know, home run guy. But yet, um, you know, you look at the numbers, he, back when I had him, if he put a ball on the ground, no matter where it was at, the third base to first base on the ground, I mean, he was like a 150 OPS guy. It was just, it was terrible. I mean, he's, but when he put the ball in the air, didn't matter if it was down the left field line, right field line, it's like 2,500. It was just, I mean, just astronomical, right? It was, and so what would you tell Joey is go, you know, look, go look to drive the ball in the air, right? You bring up Votto. 
That's right. I you loved, were in Pittsburgh. You had a lot of battles with you. That's right. Yeah. And and what I loved about Joey was that he knew who he was. He knew what his responsibility was to the team, which took him to a place to where, you know what? Well, if the game says that I need to, I need to stand up there and look to drive the ball in the seats, he was going to do that. If the game and the situation dictated that, hey, look, I need to hit the ball the other way, drive the ball, there's a hole here, that's, that's what he would do. It is a quintessential team player looking to help his team do what? Win a baseball game. And we've, we've lost – We've lost some of that. We've we've gone to well. This is just a chess match, right? Where we can just maneuver guys around the field. But if we get back to, you know, some of the aspect of, you know, you got to give up something to get something in this game. Mm. They don't give out extra extra. You don't get an extra win. You don't get an extra half a point if you beat a team by 10 or as opposed to by one. It's still just one victory. And so how do we how do we do that? And and, and I think that that part of the problem is that we try to measure we want to measure players so that we know just who they are, what they are for that consistency. And what you forget is they're all they're all human beings. And they have a skill set, but can they develop an, an extra skill set to help a team win? And that's the part that that I think we we have forgotten about. You as a hitting coach, you're going to be asked to go take a young power hitter who everybody thinks is a power hitter and make him only a power hitter. Um Jeff Bagwell was a pure hitter before he was ever a power hitter. Just, and there, there's an old, I grew up in the, in, in the day where, you know, powers that the should be this, the, the, the secondary thing that comes. Teach a hitter how to hit first, then the power will come and you'll have a great hitting power hitter, not just a, a 220 power hitter. I, that I, makes sense. I totally, no, I totally agree that I was able to, uh, you know, had a had a big leaguer in not that long ago. And that's one of the things we talked about was how, you know, he was learned, he was taught how to hit first and then the power came later on. And that's, that's, I mean, I, I would say, I'm not saying everyone has to do that, but that's more what I would like. I mean, I think, I think I'm echoing the same thing. What you just pretty much said is I think kids need to know how to, they need to know how to hit first. They need to know how to, and hitting is, you know, getting your approach, knowing who you are as a hitter, knowing the situation, all that stuff. And the thing is, is if you know that, you probably will actually hit for more power. Right. You're going to give yourself a greater opportunity to have increase that contact ratio. You're also going to shrink those out of the zone swings. You're going to increase your swing decision, right? Those if you learn to be a hitter you and develop the motor skill that it takes, and that's, that's the thing that, that we, we don't teach our young, young kids, is that this is, we're developing motor skill, just the same as is writing, right? Uh, my son, I, he, you know, he's 18 years old, 
it was never taught in school how to to write in cursive. I'm thinking, why are we stopping the the motor skill development? It's it's a fine motor skill. Well, there's there's gross motor skill in hitting. There's fine motor skill in hitting. For all we're ever doing is teaching and developing the gross motor skill. And then there's just look at that's why strikeouts have gone so drastically up in the game of baseball is because of the the fine motor skill that it takes to be able to be a pure hitter now and out and, and again an out is an out and i and i hear it oh you know it's you know they're productive strikeouts yeah it's still a strikeout <laughs> you have not challenged anything you know i you know a guy goes up there and takes a 12 pitch uh at bat and strikes out. Yes, that's you battled your, the pitcher and put him in a position to have a chance for failure against the next guy that comes up behind you because there is that element there too. However, when you strike out, you have challenged nothing. You haven't challenged a defense. So ball in play. Last I checked, we were still making, you know, not only physical but mental errors in, in the game of baseball. We probably make more mental errors in the game of baseball because there's less balls being put in play. Mm. That's a good point. That's a good point. And you see that at the younger level. I mean, I know I see that even at the younger levels. I've coached high school baseball too, and the exact same thing. You see that all the time. Well, we've we've dulled down the 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 ability to develop baseball instincts on the field, the playing instincts. Oh, and that that's and I and I think that's where when I think about what's what's kind of going on in, in baseball right now, where where our commissioners want to take things right and and kind of control some of the development of of, of our players, of understanding that uh, we've gotten away from the complete development of players. You, know, you you watch Major League Baseball, base running is atrocious. It's it's you know it, it is the decision making on some of the bases that we. You know, some guys are being taught don't the risk aversion on the bases as opposed to the risk assessment and putting pressure on the defense. Um, when we showed up in 16 or 15 in Texas, I watched a, a group of, of players that they were station to station. They didn't put the pressure on any defense. They didn't play. They were it was a home run hitting team, but yet there were a lot of strikeouts and very shallow outs. There were a lot of pitchers on that staff that they were strikeout artists. So the defense, there was no real pressure on our defense. So we played a very standardized, you know, routine, excuse me, defense. However, we weren't very attentive on defense. So what did we have to ramp up? We had to ramp up the, the mindset. We were going to, we were going to put the ball and play more. We were going to run the bases aggressively and we may not win a lot of our games in blowout fashion because we weren't looking to drive every ball out of the ballpark. Uh, and we need to show up for every single, every, every single pitch on defense because we were going to pitch to have more balls put in play. And when we did, we were, we were able to, shorten our own innings our time of possession was greater it took some time to, to kind of get that in play and I think we set a record for for more comeback vict victories 
uh, more one run uh, victories in, 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 in modern baseball and things like that. And we won a division. Now, um, it took some time to get there, but we increased the, the aptitude and skill development, but more so the instincts of players. And in today's, when you watch the development of our young players, all the way from, from T-ball through Little League, through travel ball, where you, know, you get into travel ball, and this is, this is one, you know, we can, this, we can probably have a whole <laughs> Another series. Yeah. Right. On, on that. So, you know, parents pay money for their kids to go play shortstop. Just because we want them to play shortstop. Reality is the ability to play everywhere on the field and learn kind of all aspects, that fundamental interchangeability of, you know, you may, you might be a shortstop on your high school team, but you might wind up being a left fielder on your college team. And that's a whole different skill set. But yet it's being a pure baseball player. Yeah. And right now it's like we, we treat it like it's, like it's football where a running back's a running back or a receiver's a receiver, a lineman's a lineman. Well, reality is that if you have the skill set to be a baseball player, um, unless the handedness comes into play, you should be able to, to do a lot of different things on the field to give your team an opportunity to win, but also going to increase your, your aptitude in baseball instincts. Do you see that lacking right now at the college level that you're able to, to watch, you know, not just University of Northern Colorado, but other schools too? I do. I, I, I really do because there is <clears> – <throat> these kids are coming out of these programs where that's all they play. And they don't – you know, and they're taught – they're all taught right now uh, in, in facilities. And I'm not against facilities. It's – they're great. You need – Again, you need places to go develop your skill set and your motor skill. However, the game, baseball is one of those pure games. When you get out and play the game, it's going to teach you more than just, you know, the, the motor skill. The speed of the ball off the bat, how to, you know, position, position yourself to catch a ground ball, the footwork, um, you know, the footwork in the outfield, you know, how do we drive our hips back to, to – to go get a ball straight over our head, uh, reading a ball off, reading the barrel, reading the ball off the bat, right? As a pitcher, you know, you know, they're all taught power, 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 as opposed to, you know, uh, what is that hitter in the box trying to do? There is that part of it. They're, they're taught, well, your stuff, we just stick, stick to your stuff. And if you locate, then you'll have a greater sense of success. And then when you, when you start looking at even guys in the big leagues, their execution rate off the mound is about a 50-50 proposition to begin with. And so um, that part of it for me is just, you know, you hearken back to a guy like, uh, and, and everybody does it, Greg Maddox, right? The ability to go, you know, strike the ball, ball to strike, uh, understanding you know, do I have this hitter out on his front foot? Did I raise his eye level? Did I slow him down to speed him up? And all these things, right? But that is a pitcher. We're not teaching our guys to recognize that anymore because if you watch deliveries, they're all over the place. You get to all these head whacks and 
So they, they don't have the visual of the hitter because it's all power. Mm-hmm. My next question, it's a little bit of a, a broad one, but I, I just, I would like to, I'm just curious of your answer and just what first comes to my mind. What, what's the best thing about being a major league manager? <laughs> I know that's probably a lazy question, but uh, there's only 30 jobs. Only 30 people get those jobs. I mean, and it's so rare and there's, you know, I'm sure the schedule is more insane than people even realize. Like what's, what's the best thing about it? Well, you're at the pinnacle of the sport. Uh, there's no league higher than Major League Baseball. You don't graduate to the next league. And so um, it is being at the highest level. It's the highest competition. And I get this. I had the best seat in the house to watch the greatest baseball athletes on the planet. Mm. Um. I don't take that lightly. That is, uh, but also that knowing that they're still athletes, they're, you know, a lot of them are still young. There's a lot of life still out in front of all these guys. And if, I have any opportunity to change the trajectory of their life. That's probably the, the greatest reward. Mm-hmm. And the thing that I cherish the most, you know, would I love to win a world series? Yes. That's the that's the ultimate prize that we, that we cherish, <clears throat> excuse me, that we cherish for all the bullshit, excuse me, that we put ourselves through. Why do we, why do we celebrate wins? Think about that. Why do we celebrate wins? Why, why do you, right. It's, it's, it's hard. Winning is hard. You know, people, you know, I, I, I love the whole, well, you know, we just, you, you know, we'll, we'll re- rebuild. Well, you know how long we rebuilt in, in Pittsburgh? <laughs> 21 years. <laughs> yeah. I learned one of the greatest lessons ever about, you know, being in Pittsburgh, just how, just how hard it is to win and why you need to celebrate. And I probably love those moments. And then the other moments, here's it. So, uh, Chichi Gonzalez, right-handed pitcher that he's with Colorado now, and uh, Jose Trevino, catcher that's still with Texas. There's two moments. Um, really, are multiple. The two that I give you. So we'd brought Chichi up. A lot of hype. Um, highly drafted player, pitcher out of Oral Roberts. You know, people in Texas couldn't wait for Chi-Chi to get there, right? There's that hype machine that we do with our, for our players. And we bring him up. He pitches a game in Kansas City where, 
he had a no hitter going through, I think five or six innings and he's a sinker slider guy. And, uh, just a heck of a game kind of in a, in the middle of the year, in the you know, middle of summer where, we, you know, we needed some, some guys to come show up and do some things for us. And then we, we go back to Texas. I, it was either a Friday or Saturday night. It was a packed house. We were playing, I don't know if it was Boston or, or, uh, can't remember, but it was a, it was a high profile game and it was a weekend game. And it was, I mean, it was packed house. And Chi-Chi goes out and, and, and proceeds to just dice up and pitch just his rear end off. And I think it was in the seventh inning, and it got to the point to where we had a lead, and I needed to go take him out. We needed to make a pitch and change, and, and he kind of knew it too. And I start out of the dugout and Chi-Chi starts down the, down the mound. And I'm like, kind of hold my hand up for him to stop. And I get out there and the entire infield, you know, Beltre, Andrus, Odor, Moreland. <clears throat> and I said, hey, hold on a second, Chi-Chi. I said, listen, I just want you to do one thing for me. I said, I'm. Uh, when I raise my right hand, this crowd is going to erupt. They are going to appreciate you being a rookie. They're going to appreciate the job you have done, but it's the acknowledgement to you. You need to let that soak in because you may never hear this again. Mm. Not that, not that I don't believe in you, but this is just, we get so few moments like that. And when I raised my right hand, it, I mean, they it just erupted. He walked down off the mound, and it's, you know, you ask, what are the one of the greatest things being a manager? In those moments, it's Jose Trevino um, coming up on Father's Day, a year after he had lost his father. And he had become a father himself. Rookie gets a jam shot in extra innings in a game that we needed. We hadn't. We needed a, to to win. We needed a personality win. And it was extra innings, and he gets this hit, knowing that he was going to be sent down after the game. And being able, being able to all those things and watching and understanding what he's feeling, but as a manager, those moments, just as much as I love the moment when when Beltre celebrated with his family and the fans and getting hit three thousand, they all matter, and that's that's why I love to do what I do. Mm, that's very you cool. Know? Very cool. So, Last question I have for you. I want to be respectful of your time. You've been incredible. Um, and we appreciate it. Definitely. <clears throat> Before we started recording, I, I love the answer that you gave to how you as a manager judge a, a hitting coach. I was wondering if you could share that because it, is nothing, it had nothing to do with mechanics or <laughs> outcome, really. How do you judge 
hitting coach. And I guess that's maybe a selfish question because I'm a hitting coach, but I just loved your answer you gave. Well, I think, you know, with, with any coach, you know, first, can you connect? Uh, can you can you connect with your players? Can you develop that relationship to and, – and connections don't always mean that they're, hey, we love each other every single day. It's not, it's not you know, that, that perfect world, but can you connect enough to tell, the, tell your player the truth, challenge your players, and, and you know, allow them to, to, to ask the questions why? Why do I need, why do I need to do this? Tell me, you know, so I can understand. Can, and you know, because that connection is going to allow you to, to coach that player appropriately. Um, and then, you know, can you, can you incrementally change the trajectory of that player? We're not, I mean, you got to have the connection first. I don't know a coach alive that doesn't have the knowledge. All right. We got all that. We got all the theory of baseball. We get the theory of hitting theory of pitching. You, you know, if you don't know something, just log on. You can find any video you want to, to, you know, every little leaguer is a major league coach. I mean, every little league coach, a major league coach now with all the, the videos that are out there, but what it misses is the ability to connect um, with players. And that, that is a life learned skill because every player is different players. Again, I'll go back to players. Want to know that you care about them. Do you care about them enough to tell them the truth? Do you care enough about them to, to challenge them? Do you care enough about them to show up when, when things are shitty? It's easy to show up when players are doing well. You're a great coach when when guy when 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 guys are hitting and the ball looks like a you know a beach ball to them and they're they're putting you know ball in play and they're just hammering everything is being thrown up there. But what do you have? What do you have for a player when? And are you there with them when things are are crappy? Right? Do you care enough about them? And that's that to me when I when I see that in in coaches. And then, you know, when, when a player is, um, can you change that, the attitude of the day, right? uh, that overconfidence, um, false bravado, where you, you see a player that he's scuffling, but he doesn't want to let the world know that he's, he's struggling. So you get that that false hustle in their attitude and can you bring them back to reality or when that, when that guy is, he's, you know, he's banging the ball, not getting his results and he's beating the side of the cage. You know, his dad is probably phoning him from back home and going, why the hell aren't you hitting you know, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, all number one derailer for players, in my opinion, is the relationship away from the field that is, you know, they're 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 trying to serve something other than, the, than themselves and their teammates. And can you as a coach understand that, make that connection so that you can draw them back to where they need to be and focus in on 
you know, changing their trajectory. That makes sense. That's awesome. That's well, well put. And that's a great, great way to wrap up this awesome episode. Jeff, I appreciate it. You know, I don't know what your plans are for the future, but whatever you want to do, I, I hope it does come true because you definitely seem like someone that, you know, a lot of players would benefit from playing for. So I, I appreciate it again. No, you got another uh, nice hour and a half drive to practice, which is <laughs> another great, I mean, that's another great commitment by you, uh, which I think is awesome. So again, I appreciate it, Jeff. All right, Patrick, thank you very much. And uh, to, 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 you know, all of your, your people who watch and the coaches. Um, so I always end an email or a text uh, with dare to make a difference and, and let that soak in and, and kind of what that means to you. Um, a lot of times we get conservative on, on how we, how we coach other people, but if we dare to make a difference, we understand that, that there's so much more than just, just the skill set. Okay. Okay. We're making a difference in, in other people's lives. Yeah. But I appreciate it. It's been a blast and uh, good luck to you. And Thank you. I'll tell you Dave get... Anderson you said what's up too. Yeah, tell him I said, said hey and, uh, and uh, good luck to you. Appreciate it.